listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Tonight is the final part of a two-part episode, so stay tuned and we will get right to it. First, I have to always thank you for listening. You have no idea how much Paul and I appreciate your feedback. Remember, you can always email us at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. Also remember to check us out at killerpodcasts.com. We are trying to become the number one podcast there. Tell a friend or family member about us so we can continue to grow. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for a brand new mystery. I'm your co-host, Stevie Oder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist who spent some 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Jonestown is the story of the 1978 massacre of 918 Americans who followed the Reverend Jim Jones, an Indiana native, to his religious commune in the jungle of Guyana. That's a country on the northern border of South America. There, the increasingly paranoid Jones reacted to a visit by a U.S. congressman and an investigative news team from NBC by ordering the mass murder and suicide of his followers. Now, in part one, we followed the journey of three women from Ohio who are key figures in this story, leading up to the point that they arrived in Guyana. You met Patricia Cartmell of Columbus, one of Jones's longest-serving followers, and a loyalist responsible for growing his people's temple. She was 48 years old when she, her husband, and two children moved to Guyana in August of 1977. You also met Sharon Rose Cobb of South Charleston, Ohio, a registered nurse who specialized in pediatrics. She was 29 years old when she and her husband, as well as her dad and a niece, made the move to Guyana in July of 1977. And you met Patty Parks, another woman from South Charleston, whose husband and children were not as sold on Jones as Patty was, but wanted to keep their family together. Patty was 43 years old when she, her husband, their three children, and her mother-in-law moved to Guyana in March of 1978. Tonight, in part two, we pick up with events in Guyana, and we're going to move quickly because there isn't much time. On November the 18th, 1978, Patricia, Sharon, and Patty are all going to die. Patty Parks. Patty Parks and her husband Jerry hadn't even acclimated to the South American jungle when they realized they made a horrible mistake. On only his second day in Guyana, Jerry voiced his desire to return to the United States. That's all the time it took for Jerry and Patty to learn Jim Jones had dropped any facade that he had maintained in California. He was now a dictator of his own little country, spouting endlessly on a public address system. 
Jerry Park's request to leave was answered with a beating on stage during an evening church meeting. By now, Patty also wanted to leave, but they were trapped. They were far from civilization with no transportation in a primitive land patrolled by armed church guards. The church had all their money and their passports. For months, they talked about how they might escape. The park's youngest daughter, Tracy, 11 at the time, recently told the Springfield New Sun what life was like during that time. She compared it to hell. She said the children attended school from 8 a.m. until noon, then went to the fields to work. After a full afternoon under the tropical sun, they would shower and then stand in line to eat dinner. But there were too many people for the resources at hand. Most meals were a bowl of rice with powdered milk, speckled with live weevils. Then, Tracy was quoted, it was off to the pavilion to listen to that nut scream and yell until 2 or 3 a.m., all to turn around and do it all over again the next day. There was something else, too, something even more diabolical. Every once in a while, the church conducted suicide drills, requiring their members to drink a flavor aid that, if the time ever came, would be laced with poison. Joan said the act would be necessary if the United States government ever came after them. Tracy said, It was a constant state of fear. I was living like I was going to die. And then it came, the day Jones feared, but the day the Parks family prayed for. Leo Ryan, a U.S. congressman from California, had been hearing a lot about the People's Temple from family members who feared for their loved ones. He went to investigate himself and took a news crew from NBC. The compound prepared a feast for their guests. Tracy Parks recalled being so excited because cookies and chicken were on the menu and she'd only eaten bug-infested rice for months. But she was also excited because her dad told her they were going to leave. During Ryan's visit, it was the grandma, Edith Parks, who ran up to Ryan and told him the family was being held against their will. Other church members laughed it off and tried to explain to Ryan that Edith was insane. But during Congressman Ryan's talk with Jim Jones, Jones assured him that nobody was being held against their will. So Ryan invited anyone who wanted to to leave with him. Fifteen people stepped forward, including the six members of the Parks family. Jones begged the family to stay offering Jerry $5,000 in the return of their passports if they would at least stay until Ryan and his group was gone. No thanks, Jerry said. Congressman Ryan walked with the Parks back to their cottage to collect their things, but in their absence, Jim Jones was making plans. He might allow the truck with the defectors to leave the compound, but he was not going to let anyone leave Guyana especially knowing they could bear witness to what had been happening there. As the truck prepared to depart, Larry Layton asked to join them. And that was odd. Layton was a Jim Jones loyalist. 
the defectors voiced their suspicions, so Leighton was searched for any weapons. He was unarmed. They took him along. But Patty knew something was up. She told her husband something bad was going to happen and made him promise to look after their children. When the truck arrived at the airstrip, there was only one plane. Ryan's party had to call for a second plane to carry the additional passengers. And as they waited for the Cessna to arrive, Leighton was making his way to where a rifle was hidden at the edge of the open field. Nobody noticed. The second plane arrived, and everyone began to board, NBC news cameras rolling all the time. That's when Leighton opened fire, and he wasn't alone. Just then, a dozen henchmen sent by Jones, traveling in a flatbed wagon pulled by a tractor, joined the ambush. A videographer caught the first volleys until he was shot dead. Greg Robinson, Don Harris, Bob Brown, all part of NBC's investigative crew, were killed. Congressman Ryan was shot in the head. In the end, they will shoot him 40 times. And one bullet found Patty Parks. Patty was standing in the doorway of the plane when a bullet exploded her head. Her brains splattered over her daughter, Brenda. Leighton took aim at Patty's 24-year-old son, Dale, but the gun misfired. Dale was able to reach him and wrestle the gun away. Now those who were able fled into the woods. Eventually, the gunmen left. In addition to the five dead, they left ten people on the ground, bleeding and in agony. Those hiding in the trees slowly came back out to care for the wounded, but help would take almost a full day to reach them. It would take a lot longer for the nightmare to end for the Parks' two daughters. During the chaos, 18-year-old Brenda and 11-year-old Tracy, along with three other children, did what Jerry Parks yelled at them to do. Run! Hide! For three days, they remained in the thick jungle. Three days without food, water, or shelter in a sweltering forest filled with predators and Brenda covered in her mother's brain matter. Tracy said, On the third day, we were so sick, we were ready to die. I was begging the Lord to take me. But on the third day, Brenda thought she heard music and led the small group to the sound. It was actually a generator and civilization. They were rescued. Tracy turned out to be the youngest survivor of a massacre that had killed 304 children. Officials in Guyana were horrified by what the Americans had done in their country. They demanded the U.S. retrieve the bodies and get them out. While Jerry and his three surviving children were stuck in Guyana for several more days as the investigation tried to sort everything out, Patty's remains were shipped home to South Charleston, Ohio. She was buried in Ferncliff Cemetery, before her family could even return to say goodbye. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. 
On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio vs. the world makes history fun again. Sharon Rose Cobb. We don't know a lot about the daily life of Sharon Rose Cobb while she was in Guyana. We know the woman from South Charleston, a registered nurse, was assigned to the health clinic to work with children. We also know her indoctrination to the People's Temple was complete and unquestioning to the point that it made the woman who had been described by her childhood friends as sweet, shy, and a role model into a baby killer. Remember those suicide drills I mentioned? Jones called them white knights. There were some rumblings back when the cult was still in California that members might need to prepare for a group suicide if the time came, But it wasn't until the move to Guyana that the concept became openly talked about and repeatedly practiced, with members given grape juice and told to drink it, that if the time came, the juice would be poison. At least three times, Jones feared the time had come, and his compound guards took up guns as well as shovels, hoes, and sticks, and each time they stayed alert for days, suspecting some force was coming to take their promised land from them. Church members were brought forward to a mic on stage, one at a time, to pledge their willingness to die. Sharon Rose Cobb took the mic when it was her turn and said, I am ready at any time to give my life, whether it be in the States taking traitors with me or in a country fighting a revolution or here in Guyana defending our land. Her chance to prove it came November the 18th, 1978. The one account I could find about Sharon's final day came from Tim Carter, one of a handful of People's Temple members who survived the carnage. Carter was a Vietnam vet, married to his wife, Gloria, whom he adored, and they had a new baby, Malcolm. Carter had become part of Jim Jones' hierarchy. His sister was even married to one of Jones's adopted sons. But he never really believed Jones would order a mass suicide. He saw the drills as symbolic, a way for members to voice their loyalty. I found an interview in a New Zealand newspaper where Carter described Jim Jones' state of mind leading up to the suicide order. Carter said, When Congressman Leo Ryan first arrived and word got out that a few church members were hoping to leave with him, Jones became unhinged. Jones told Carter to take two other men and carry three suitcases filled with $1.6 million in cash and gold to the Soviet embassy in the Guyana capital of Georgetown. He was bequeathing it to the Communist Party. This mission 
meant Carter and his two partners were excused from taking their own lives. But the reprieve did not include their families, who were still expected to die. As Jones explained the details of the suitcase mission to Carter, they were in the pavilion, where there were already buckets full of grape flavor aid mixed with cyanide. Meanwhile, the gunmen who had been sent to the airstrip returned and reported that Congressman Ryan was dead, along with several others. Jones took to the stage to tell his followers that Ryan's visit meant there was no hope for the future, that it was time to follow through with the suicide they had planned. The congressman has been murdered, Jones shouted to his followers. Please get the medication before it's too late. Don't be afraid to die. Not that his followers had a choice. They were surrounded by armed guards to ensure they followed through. The cyanide-laced drinks were brought forward. Jones wanted the children to die first. He knew the parents would be less likely to resist if the children were dead. Sharon Rose Cobb and the rest of the medical staff had practiced this before. They were ready. As this order was given, Tim Carter made an effort to save his family. He told Jones he wanted to pose with his wife and son as defectors and that they would go to San Francisco and hunt down former church members who had turned on Jones. The cult leader turned to Carter and said, Will you take care of your son first before you go? Carter shook his head. Carter and the two men went to Jones's cottage to retrieve the three suitcases filled with money while Carter tried to contemplate his next move. But it was too late. When they got back to the pavilion, his wife, Gloria, was already on the ground, foaming at the mouth from the poison she'd been given. And Sharon Rose Cobb, the nurse from South Charleston, Ohio, was squeezing a syringe full of poison into the mouth of his baby. Carter said he held his family as they died. I put my arms around Gloria as she was holding Malcolm and just kept sobbing. I love you so much. I love you so much. She started convulsing, and then I ran, ran as fast as I could. Behind him, Carter heard children bawling and screaming as the medical staff continued to squirt poison down their throats. Tim Carter returned to Jonestown two days later to help identify the bodies. As I walked through the pavilion, he said, I identified what bodies I could. I saw injection marks. It was really evident to me that people had just flat out been murdered, held down and injected the ones that didn't want to drink the poison. Sharon Rose Cobb was among the dead, as were her father, the Reverend Nathaniel Sweeney, and her niece, Stephanie. Their remains were returned to Ohio and are buried at Grape Grove Cemetery in the Greene County village of Jamestown. Patricia Cartmel. Patricia was part of Jim Jones' inner circle. 
responsible for collecting inside information on new members that would allow Jones to impress his faithful by revealing things that he shouldn't have known. She was also responsible for arranging his sexual trysts with male and female church members. She would approach objects of Jones's desire and instruct them it was their duty to fulfill their leader's urges. Patricia was in Guyana with her husband, Walter, a quiet man content to remain in the background. Her 24-year-old daughter, Tricia, who was assigned to the compound's carpentry department, and seven-year-old Tyrone, whom the Cartmels had adopted in California. There is video of Patricia Cartmel the day she died. The NBC crew that filmed Congressman Ryan's visit caught her on camera, looking on with curiosity at Jim Jones as he tried to talk the Parks family into staying. Later, they took footage of her hugging a black woman as if trying to reassure her everything would be okay. Later still, when photographers poured into Jonestown to capture the aftermath of the massacre, they would take an image of Patricia lying dead next to her daughter Tricia and next to the woman she had been comforting in that video. Also killed that day were her husband Walter and their adopted son Tyrone. Back in the United States, Mike Cartmill, who hadn't seen his family since defecting from the church five years earlier, got to see his mother and sister when he picked up a Newsweek magazine and opened the centerfold. They were holding each other in their death pose. Patricia and her daughter Tricia's remains were cremated and scattered at sea. More than 400 of the victims were returned to Oakland, California, and buried in a cemetery there. Jim Jones was found dead of a gunshot wound to the head. He wouldn't take the poison himself. It has been debated whether the gunshot was self-inflicted or whether someone else pulled the trigger for him. Mike Cartmel wrote about his mom in an article for a Jonestown website that's maintained by San Diego State University. He wrote, So what possibly could account for mom's transformation from a somewhat ordinary, devout Christian to a bizarre, suicidal cultist at the end? I suspect that over time, and without really thinking about the consequences— And, of course, with Jim's guidance, she made what she considered insignificant adjustments in her own moral sense and conduct, all in the service of the greater good, which Jim claimed for himself. She blinded herself to the ultimate monstrous and terrifying consequences that her actions helped bring about. In so doing, she destroyed her humanity and the lives of our family. I dream about my family frequently, even after all these years. In their last ephemeral appearance, my sister and my mom were sitting by a stream. I was thrilled to see them, and we waved back and forth. But as I hurried toward them, they simply vanished. Much of the information in this story came from a website maintained by San Diego State University, where they have an exhaustive collection of documents and personal testimonies from surviving family members and former temple members. 
We'll put the link in the episode notes and on our website. Other information was gleaned from newspapers as well as Facebook pages dedicated to victims. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every single one of our episodes, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Paula has it laid out fantastic there. Easy to search through, find the content that you want. We'll see you here back next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.